Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global, our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we have Eric Geisler is going to be here. He's a two-time Emmy winner and post-production expert and uh, um, just an all-around good guy. <laughs> knows a lot about post-production. So um, if you, uh, he's been, he's really in the thick of a lot of uh, visual effects and and nerfs and all kinds of things. It's going to be a great second hour, a great, play, great place to ask questions. Um, so, uh, so stay tuned for uh, the second hour with Eric. And if you've got questions for him, um, then go ahead and throw those into Makana. If you've got questions for the first hour, you can just go ahead and throw those into Makana as well. Make sure to vote on the questions um, because that helps us decide which ones to ask first. And if you aren't in Makana, uh, you can still ask questions. You can use the QR code or just go to askofficehours.global. And um, askofficehours.global is where you want to go if you want to add it to the drop. Um, we usually have a graphic, but it's right usually right there, <laughs> but it's not here today. So anyway, so uh, askofficehours.global is where you want to put, drop that question. Let's go ahead and there it is. See, it just popped right in. See, it just slid in there. So uh, so anyway, you can use that QR code if you'd like. Um, by the way, if you haven't checked it out, um, go back and look at um, the Saturday. Saturdays, we're going to take a couple of weeks off because not we're not stopping for a couple of weeks, but we're not going to be doing the HDR test on Saturday because we're, we're moving our kit. But... Um, Go back and look at Saturday's uh, test if you have an iPhone or something that shows HDR. Pretty impressive. You know, so we're, you know, some of the stuff doesn't work. I look really oversaturated. Um, there's a couple other ones that, that that are a little off as we kind of figure this stuff out. But you're starting to see this really interesting, we're starting to play with it a little bit. So for instance, with this little QR code that you see here, I left the text and the logo itself as white. But I made the background black and the and the and the um, the pattern to be gray, and you'll notice it in HDR. <laughs> like it just—it's a completely different. It doesn't look nearly the same as it looks here on this show, uh, because we're not in HDR on this day. But um, and then then you'll also notice with some. Excuse me. You'll also notice with some of the some of our panelists just <clears throat> lights in the background, and um, it's funny. Jeffrey's uh, mic holder is nuclear. The white is nuclear. Like it's like it's like Jeffrey's there, and then there's like the super bright white that's there. That's yeah, there. I was so, wondering about that. Yeah, yeah that's pretty, but this is why we're doing it on Saturdays is to see like what works, what doesn't. Um, you know, no one's ever done that. Like the like Mitch's little lights in the background is on air, just like light up. You know, as, as does the monitors for John and so on and so forth. And so so the um, it's just it's worth checking out because we're we're learning you know, as we do that. And and I think that what's going to be interesting is this back and forth of slowly building some of our backgrounds. I know I'm changing the way my background and my foreground looks based on that feedback. And, and I find it to be, um, anyway, it's, it's a really interesting experiment. We hope to be fully in HDR by uh, by the beginning of the year. And so um, so you're, you'll see more and more testing as we get closer to the, um, to the process. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Uh, Mitch, what do we have? Thanks, Alex. First in, Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. Alex often says that live events should be Q&A with content viewed and digested prior to an onstage appearance. Could all my presentation content be played during a countdown period? Q&A starts as soon as the video goes live. Good, Bill. I absolutely agree with Alex. I've come to really understand that this is a very powerful training tool or information delivery tool. The one thing, though, is that I think you have to manage expectations. However your show, if you're doing a show, is constructed, to me, the, the 
most important thing is consistency because your audience will start to learn how your show works. If you start with Q&A at the beginning, they need to know that because people coming to the show for the first time just wandering in are going to get none of the presentational aspects of it and just have to understand that we might go to the end of the topic or the middle of the topic as the questions come up on those things rather than the traditional storytelling format of we'll begin with the beginning, go to the middle and end at the end. So as long as you train your audience, that's my opinion, as long as you train them as to what to expect, you should be able to do anything. But it does take some training, I think. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think you face the problem of how do you know that they got the message that they were supposed to watch the video before they came to the event? You know, maybe you could uh, tie the video to the registration. You know, after you view this video, you can unregister. But that's kind of uh, puts uh, a little uh, impedance on signing up. So <clears throat> I think showing the video right at the top uh, you know, as the show is supposed to start, so the video plays, and then you go into questions would be good. But I, I think it would kind of do a disservice to people who just tune into the video and didn't know what the presentation was going to be about, because people like Apple and others uh, do secret announcements. You know, we're going to make a big announcement to make a big splash, and so they're going to announce something new, and they're not going to release a video beforehand because that uh, disrupts their uh, news event of releasing that information all at once. So I'm not sure how you'd handle those kind of situations. Maybe in a in a classroom situation where, you know, there's required reading or something, you're required to view the video before you show up for class, and then the teacher just does Q&A. That's perfectly acceptable. Go ahead, Chris. I think what we're talking about here is tropes. You know, what, what, what is the standard way that we all know how to do something? And if we think about what, you know, television was, and I'm going to use past tense, you sit down, you know, you might plop on your couch and rifle through the channels and go, oh, I'm going to watch this. You know, you've probably missed the first couple of minutes, but you don't care that much because it's not that good anyway. And you're just, it's there to fill the noise, it, the noise of nothingness in your home. So you have your TV on. But I think that what we are beginning to see is an evolution to a different trope. And that is... Um, an informed audience who is seeking out a specific uh, type of entertainment or education. And I think that as we, as people learn that there is a different way of looking at it, I think the idea of knowing that, you know, I should watch this thing before I watch this interview. I mean, people will learn how to do that, whether they do it in mass and whether they do, whether the, you know, the bulk of the bell curve of people learn that maybe not. It's surprising to me how many people still just want that, you know, cable television, turn it on, noise in the room, plop down, I'll watch anything because I just don't have anything else to do. Um, but I think that there is definitely an evolution to a new way of consuming uh, information and entertainment. Clark Shaughnessy. Do you know who Clark Shaughnessy is? Chris? No. Um, he was the coach for the Stanford uh, Indians football team uh, in 1940, um, and they were known as the Wow Boys. And the reason is Stanford was so bad that they were going to cancel the football the program. They were so bad. They had not won for seasons. Like, they had, they were so bad. And um, he had had this kind of he – he had, he had a losing team, I think, in Northwestern or something like that. He had this crazy idea of a, of a new um, – T formation with a man in motion, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and uh, this T formation, and he came out with it, and it confused the defenses so much 
that it uh, um, that they were running into each other. Like they just couldn't figure it out. And he went und- they went undefeated. You know, not a good team, but a and then they just kept winning. You know, and then within a couple within a decade, pretty much everybody used the same thing. No one was asking for a fix. Like when he came in to do that, there was nothing broken in football. <laughs> like everybody was just doing what they were doing and it was working. And we always have to remember that that a lot of times everyone's just doing what they're doing because that's the way that it's been done. And they're not looking at the next generation of how that, how that, you know, and something comes out and suddenly everybody does something different, you know, and, and it's just a matter of it turning that corner. He spent years trying to make this actually work and it, you know, and it, uh, you know, didn't, didn't work for a long time and then suddenly it popped off and there you go. Yeah. So, so the thing, complacency is a powerful drug. (laughs) It yeah. is, and as long as everyone stays in their lane, as long as everybody stays in their lane, it is it, it stays there. But the problem is, is that what happens when people step out of that lane? And I think that the the thing about Q and A specifically, and about education, I mean, because our education system is about to come unwound, you know, like I mean, and I mean, it's just going to become chaotic, and that's usually where there's a lot of opportunity, um, you know, in this in this process. And so the but the. Um, and it's been complacent. And the problem with complacency is eventually it runs out of steam. Like, you know, you just eventually the world changes so much that that whatever was comfortable just doesn't work anymore. And and so the issue with I, I wouldn't say that you should put it in the pre-show because I, I think I agree. I agree very much with Courtney in the sense that people won't know. They'll be like, I got here and what happened? You know, like, you know, the certain bill said and said the same thing. But what we have found where we've done this and this is in specifically entertainment based things. Product launches are a little different because you want everyone to be on the same queue. Now, Apple doesn't do those live anymore either. I mean, Apple does, you know, Apple, Apple just plays you a video um, live. And so, but they play it all at one time. So everyone gets it at the same time. They can all talk about it at the same time. We can all get together and, and watch it together. So there's a reason to do it online at the, at the same time. But what I will say is that if you have a bunch of educational things, if you're doing a conference, and you put those videos out, and I wouldn't recommend right before the show, I would recommend two weeks before the show, only, well, here's what we found when we've done this in the past, 10%, maybe 15% of the people coming to your conference will watch the videos. There's that person, you know, they were good at school, you know, they started, they started their, their year, they started their, uh, their, their, um, court, their semester, uh, final, you know, project or whatever on the second day and they work on it a half an hour a day. There's just that, there's a group of people that will just do that, right? And they will, and they're the studious ones and everything else. So they will... They're the ones that will watch this video ahead of time. Now, what's interesting is, and, and, I, and I don't think you just jump right into the questions. I think you you summarize it. You see us do this model here. We don't send you, we're working on getting to a point where we send you videos before the show. Right now, you get 10 minutes, 15 minutes with the, the person or the expert or the discussion before we open questions. That's how you can get your, you can think about it a little bit as we talk. Like we're, we're setting you up. The mistake people make is they do 45 minutes of talking and then they open it up for 15 minutes. So I'm not saying that you should get rid of it altogether. But what I am saying is, is that if you summarize it and keep it short and have this other video that kind of sets it up ahead of time, that 10 or 15% of the people will ask all the questions because they've been, they had time to look at it and they're the type of person that will look at it. They'll write things down. They want to know what these things are. And what we found on exits, and this is over the last decade of doing it in many different shows, is that the, the retention rate of everybody in the room is the same as if you'd done it all, <laughs> and, and generally more, for everyone 
including the people that didn't watch the video, because the discussion is so driven because people who had watched it have specific questions. And just being in the conversation was enough to get most of the most of the information across. And so the thing is, is that for the people who didn't watch the video, they still got a lot out of it. And it's much because when you're in a Q&A environment, you're in active listening more often. So when the Q&A is there, you're at, you're, you're, your mind is in an active listening mode a lot more often than when someone's droning on and, and giving you bad slides. And so you go into passive mode, and when you go into passive mode, your ability to retain information is about one-third of what it is when, it's, when you're in active mode. And so just keeping you in active mode will have you retain, retain more data. <laughs> just, and so, so you want to you wanna get, the, the main thing is you just want to look at your presentation as you got to get out of that as fast as you can and get into Q&A. And if you can intermingle it, you know, inside of it. So a lot of times if you go to one of my talks, you'll notice that I'll, I open up to questions immediately but what I do is I talk a little bit and then people ask questions. I talk about that. And then I talk a little bit more and we talk and I just try to intermingle all of it. And by the end of the, sh by the end, I've covered everything I was going to cover. Um, but, but I, uh, use people's questions to answer that because I know that it'll keep them in an active mode more often. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. The problem with that concept is these days, uh, everybody in the audience, or at least 90% of everyone in the audience has a little thing in their pocket that has access to the internet. And those that haven't seen the video are going to want to go and look at the video while you're in the middle of your Q and A. So you've lost attention of half the audience that hadn't seen the video. So their retention of the Q and A information is going to be zero because they're watching the video. That, that hasn't so been our I think, at all. I think you have to show <laughs> the video first and then ask we, again again we do we do an intro where we cover most of the information there we don't we don't even talk about the video like when we get on when we do the videos we get on and we just act like you've never like there was nothing there and we just give a 10 minute presentation or a 10 minute talk before the before we open it up to questions so we don't you don't if you didn't watch the video you won't know that you were missing anything it's just that there's a lot of people with a lot of really smart questions that are in the in the audience. And so like because we don't want you to feel like you're missing anything. So so we don't you know, we don't do that. Sorry, I spilled something. That's why I'm like looking a little distracted. Oh, I think I, I do things like uh, in the middle of conversations here, we'll say discuss the certain topic and I'll be not up on that topic. So I'll look up that product right. that it's you're just, talking about and look at the specifications on it to figure out and, what kind of questions I want to ask. But and you're while still, I'm doing that, I'm disconnected from the questions that are being asked while but, I'm doing that. But you're actively exploring the idea. <laughs> so, so that the, and you're looking up things, it's it just and missing again, half of the discussion. Yeah, um, not, we just haven't found that to be the case. I mean, I, I know that that's the theoretical idea of what would happen. It's just not been the what was what we've seen on the ground for a decade of doing it. You know, or and for my case, two decades of doing it. Um, and so, because I base a lot of my talks on things that I've already built videos about, so I just I, you know, so things that are you know, it's. Usually, if you're in a conversation and people are asking questions, people just pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I think during when you're working with a community of common interest, I think this works incredibly well. I mean, we're all here because we all want to learn about technology. We all want to share information about technology. Everybody's really going into the same space for the same general ideas. The one place I don't think that this system 
works as well is in competitive worlds. And I guess I'm thinking back on things like the Final Cut launch where they introduced it, but then there was this fallow period of a couple of months before the actual product shipped. And in the middle of that, you could almost see parties trying to shape the information space about this thing is terrible and it'll never work and it doesn't do this right. And and the whole conversation was dominated by people trying to tell you it was a bad idea. And then when it finally came out, that had led to huge amounts of confusion. And so I think if there's a competitive product in a space, I would keep the time between seeding the idea out there and getting it in to starting the Q&A discussion as short as possible. Because if not, you're going to find forces at work trying to move the market. Well, there's two things there, and then we'll move on. But you're right. But the main thing is, is that um, for a product launch, I would say that you do a product launch and then and then you do a Q&A session with press and a lot of companies already do this, right? So there's, so there's a, Q, a lot of Q&A sessions that happen um, after the product launch with the press, whether that's live that day or for the next couple of weeks. Um, a lot of these large companies may or may not have uh, semi-secret places in New York and LA and others where they invite press to come in and take a look at the products. Um, I, I don't know all of them, but I can tell you some of them are really nice. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the, um, um, and, uh, and so they, they show off the products there. Um, but they also, I do think that, and I think Apple does this probably better than most. And I think they've learned over time is that there's a whole bunch of videos that go out that get people excited about things that they, you know, Apple doesn't just produce the videos. They, they have, they have a launch, but then there's video after video after video after video that comes out afterwards to keep the conversation going the right direction. They also work very closely with Marquez Brownlee and, and Justine, you know, Ezerick and, and a lot of others to, you know, kind of keep that all moving in the right direction. So, so you're right that you have to pay attention to those things. And I think launches are a little different, but what I would say is that what we're talking about is 95% of it or 99% of what goes out are conferences. And you're talking about things that people want to learn about. And you give them the best opportunity to learn by giving them the videos ahead of time and letting them percolate. And you can decide whether you want to talk about that a little bit during the session. But the real value of having everybody in a live session together is to talk about it, is to discuss it and to have it in a conversation, um, not to spend a lot of time droning on about it and generally showing really bad slides. You know, um, I would like to say that I, like I've have a moratorium. I I probably haven't put a, a bullet point in my slide deck for five years. You know, like I don't use bullet points. I find another way to display the information, but I will never use a bullet point. Um, because of, because, um, it's just not, it, it turns people, I, I can see them. I used to be able to see them while I was talking, look down at their phones while I, as soon as bullet points started coming up, they'd look down and I just learned not to put them in. I, I'll put three ideas next to each other or four ideas next to each other and like little panels that spin across or something doing the same thing, but not a bullet point. <laughs> go ahead, Mitch. Uh, the first thing you should do before you go into a session or once you've gotten into the session is check under your seat because there might be something there for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> next question might be gum. Uh, David Brady from New York, New York, asking, MIT Technology Review artists now have a tool called Nightshade. It poisons AI learning models. Now, how will this impact other data sets, and will this undermine all the good that AI has to offer? Go ahead, John. David, resistance is futile. There, <laughs> there's, there, that there's, a thing, there's a thing called reinforcement learning human feedback. So they have warehouses full of people that are saying cat, dog, house. And so I I, I think this is a clickbait article. 
um, they've already they've already said there's ways that the artists can opt out of the models. So I think this is clickbait. Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, as the uh, token uh, Luddite, somebody has to explain to me how it can poison anything. It's telling it's just it's telling you that it's something different than what it is. Like it's in because a lot of this AI depends on metadata. So if you, if you start scrambling the metadata, it makes it hard for it to understand, <laughs> hard to understand. But I think that if this had come out earlier, it could have been really problematic if it was widespread and early. But it's too late now because it has error controls already built in. Like it's it already knows. Like if you tell it it's not a dog, it's like okay, I know it's not a dog, but now I'm just going to ignore you. Like you know, like you know, like I've decided that your data set. And sure, if if artists don't want to have people ignore it, but they can just uh, most of these companies are giving them the ability to tag their pages, so that there's no reason to poison the AI because they can just tag their pages. Don't use this page for AI. Um, the AI has what it needs. It doesn't need them every page now. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't like it. It, it doesn't need everybody to play along. If 80% are playing along, it'll be just fine. And so you can just, you can just tag it off um, at this point. Code Jeffrey. Is it, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, okay. isn't it easy to forget that the AI is only as good as the information it's already in there that we it's already in there? there. Okay. But it's it, like, it's in there without the poison. <laughs> like it's, you know, like it's, it's already crawled most of the internet. And so it's, it's already has that information. The new information, what they're now saying is, well, you, if you want to turn it off, it's fine. It's just that you won't be as, you know, you just won't be as seen by it. Um, that's fine because most people aren't going to turn it off. Most people aren't going to even think about it. Like they're not going to, um, you know, so I, I just don't think it's going to, it's not going to matter. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, so basically what this is, is there was a company out of Chicago called Glaze and they created this thing called Web Glaze, which actually puts uh, not add, it's not like it's adding a pixel. It's not like magic art or anything like that. Uh, but it's got the same properties as if you had like uh, if you were trying to take a picture of the latest Mazda or BMW, and they had like all the the camouflage on top of it except you can't see the camouflage and no matter what you do if you turn if you stretch if you unstretch that's it's actually very doing a very good job in keeping the properties so somebody can't copy it you're absolutely right that if this art was online before ai started then it's a good chance that it's just been cataloged and and well, gone and from there but anything that's after that uh any artist and and it's a closed it's a closed thing, so you have to be an artist to actually use WebGlaze, but you can download the WebGlaze uh, application to try it. And then, uh, like I said, it just changes some slight pixels. Yeah, which, I don't, uh, I don't. And we're, we're talking discoloration uh, that actually make this picture think that it's another picture. Yeah, the... Yeah. We'll see. I just don't think, I just think it's too late. Like, that, 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 that dog is out, out of the gate. Not to new pictures. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, but the model can compare it to new pictures. They, they can also just discard the metadata from anything that they scrape um, So and start over and let it classify it based on what it analyzes. So And then, and then have humans and then uh, cross-check it. Uh, steganography has been used for years, which is where you're embedding you know, secret information into a piece of uh, visual data. And you can do that, and I think that's a better way to control uh, copyright control and, and 
and metadata to to settle on a steganoc steganographic. That's a tough one. Uh, or a steganographic method of embedding copyright information into an image uh, invisibly. Um, and, the problem, uh, the, the problem and is having that... a decoder. Sorry about the flash. And having a decoder uh, automatically decode it and discard those that uh, have that steganographic mark on it. And it doesn't affect. Then it wouldn't wouldn't really affect the quality of the artwork or the image depicted. You know. And again, I think that what will happen is, is all these all these systems will just learn what to ignore. Like it's not they're not going to get fooled. They're, they're just going to it's just going to see it come up and just go okay, ignore that photo. And and so it's not like it's going to take it off to a you know some other right. And 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 again that that system no one's going to they're just going to ignore those images. And maybe if everybody did it long enough, it would it would slow down the process. But it's only slowing it down. I mean it. I think we really have to figure out how we're going to use AI and what we're doing. The idea of stopping it is like that is over. Like there's no like there's not any way to do that, you know. And I think that and when we look at any technology as it gets out of the gate, I mean, we didn't we figured out how to manage nuclear power, but there was no putting it back in. As soon as it went off, it was going to, as soon as it went off in New Mexico, it was going to happen. Like, in, and there was nothing that, that was nothing that anyone was ever going to do to stop it. You know, and so when technology comes out of the gate like that, you have to figure out how you're going to manage that because it's not going to be able to, it's, this is not something you can put back in the bottle. Uh, next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Yesterday, I asked about my already bricked YI-M1 camera, also pronounced E-camera, by rooting. Can I figure out if this hard, a hardware problem or a firmware OS problem, and how? Who can help? Sources of info. So he already, you already bricked your Android camera, and, oh, uh, boy. Like, I don't know if you bricked it or whether it bricked itself. I mean, I guess the question for you, Jack, is is, is this something that you d did brick in the process of you trying to update it or are you trying to recover it? Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I tried to find some some places that you could go. I tried to I looked at some uh, Reddit spots that uh, talked to cameras specifically and not too many talked about this camera. Uh, there is there is some there are, there's got to be some user group out there because this was a popular camera back then. Uh, but the only other thing I can think of is you can contact the company and see if there's anything that you can do uh, if you're not looking for paid support and uh, anything that you can do that's not paid. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, one of the reasons why Reddit has aggressively monetized its API was to capitalize on the large language model maker's need for training data. Could you see news organizations themselves deploying their own LLMs trained on their own archives? Go ahead, John. 100% is happening as we speak. So if you have a corpus of more than 100,000 words, you, you get one of the foundation models like Llama, Llama 2, and then you train it with your existing data on top of it. It's happening as we speak. Go ahead, Mitchell. Is it possible that different news organizations could put out their own LLM, some more powerful than others, and they could battle for uh, continuity of data? The battle like of the my LLMs. LLM's bigger than yours. <laughs> you 
<laughs> it would be. It would be interesting to see. I just, it depends on how they're going to actually use it. Quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, if uh, you can throw those into Makana right now uh, and vote on those questions because that helps us figure out which question to ask next. So make sure to vote if you're inside of Makana. If you're not inside of Makana, you can use just this QR code or just go to askofficehours.global. You can do that 24-7. So if you think of a question, a lot of the questions that were that are coming in from these QR codes um, are coming in throughout the night, throughout the afternoon, um, and then we file them in uh, during it. So if you've got an idea somewhere in the day, the easiest place to put it is askofficehours.global. Next question. Funsak Dorji for Dharamsala, India. Hi, panelists. During this live stream, my A10 Mini Extreme just froze. Record and stream buttons got switched off. I tried pressing the on switch, but to no avail. What could have gone wrong? Good, Bill. So sometimes my ATEM Mini has just lost its brain for some reason. It doesn't happen very often. It's mostly been a very dependable device. But when that happens, I've found myself in this circumstance where no matter what you do to the, to the unit itself, it's not going to reboot successfully without a complete shutdown. So I've actually wired my ATEM Mini through a switch on my uh, dashboard here. And if it locks up, I literally power it down. Now, if you're in a live show, because he says during a live stream, it is problematic because some of the infrastructure connections that you have will go away if you take it offline. So you have to use it judiciously. But if there's no way to bring it back and you have to do that, um, my suggestion, if you're a full-time streamer, is to have an alternative feed system so that you can get something around a component that you have to shut down so you don't mess everything up. But it's a problem. And sometimes I have had to completely reboot the whole thing from scratch. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Bill is exactly right. And unfortunately, Blackmagic Design does not like putting on-off switches on things. So you have to do it yourself. And the power switch is a screw-on terminal thing. It's just not something you could do easily. Uh, a while back, Tom Ferguson showed us a uh, inline uh, wired rocker switch, basically, that allows you to do a quick power cycle. And it only takes about five seconds for to bring it back alive. But uh, that's a great device. I'd show it to you, but I would knock my picture off. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it could be you got a gamma ray hit. Uh, a lot of things can go wrong. Con contamination of the USB bus, so, you know, USB buffer overflow, etc. Uh, weird things happen to my video signal about every 15 minutes, as you see. Um, but another thing uh, to keep in mind is it could be overheating. If you haven't, uh, that extreme, the mini extreme, has a lot of LED backlights lighting up all those little buttons. So go into the settings and drop it down to 40% or 50%. You'll still be able to see all the buttons just fine. And it reduces the amount of heat that's generated inside there considerably. So make sure that your button brightness is not turned up all the way because it could be heat that's causing a problem as well yeah and i turn the buttons all the way as low as they will go you know because it's just it's just there's you can see them just fine without that and so and i definitely i don't know if it really affects the stability of it it stays mine doesn't but mine doesn't get very hot i think the number one thing that generates heat on this is the actual led buttons um and so so i do agree with courtney that it could be a heat issue one thing to do right before a show um, so right as you're getting ready to start, it's part of, part of kind of my startup process is that I will go in and say, save startup state. So I just, like I'm about to go and I save my startup state for my, my ATEM. And what that means is that if I have to restart the ATEM, it's going to come right back into the same settings that it was right there. Um, and that's something that is, um, a lot of times we don't do that. And then you end up unplugging the, the ATEM and plugging it back in. Like for instance, Inside of Zoom, we occasionally get this gray screen, which we we think is 
black magic's fault. Anyway, so um, the uh, there's a gray screen that you get every once in a while with Zoom. And so what we, but before I unplug the switcher, all you have to do is unplug the switcher and plug it back in. It'll come right back up again. But I go up and I save my startup state. Then I open it and close it. That way it comes back up exactly with all the, um, all my images where they were. Everything's all set the way it was. I'm not losing anything. So just always remember that save state up, startup state is, a, is an important um, piece and it's right under your file fi in, in your ATEM software. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, what a bummer. I mean, this is where having alternative uh, pieces of uh, hardware down the chain can can save you. I try not to put too much load on one thing, and I, I don't want to really disparage Blackmagic products, but uh, some of the people in the chat uh, will for me. Uh, I just wouldn't put that much of a load on it. I've heard bad, just people not having good luck with the web cache filling up and things like that. So I would recommend either a web presenter or something else. Um, NAJ, uh, Helio, uh, Teradek has some good encoders. There's, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, right now, I like the Osprey Talon. That thing's been just rock solid. So it depends on your show. If you have the budget to get a better encoder, there's other encoders out there. But it, especially if you're going to YouTube, use take advantage of the primary and backup stream. So that way, if one fails, you can at least, and a router or something, so the signal can still go through. Uh, so that way, to your secondary encoder, you have the signal so you can get completely locked up and have a time to restart. If you lose your recordings, I mean, that's just, man, that's rough. That's, uh, but I've seen it happen multiple times. Sometimes it's T7 drives. Uh, so really qualify this stuff for the, the, the show, you know, try to run this stuff for 24 hours and just bake it in. Uh, there is an ATEM Extreme uh, stand that you can get that'll give you better airflow. That could, he could be a, a culprit. And then just the internet uh, cache filling up. Those are the two things that I've seen and then the bad drives. Next question. Next one coming in from Michael Smith in Silverado, California. Any panelists to see the Adobe Fast Fill project demo? Go ahead, John. Yeah, I watched it live. I was very excited. I showed it to Chris. He said, yeah, technology, it's never going to happen. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. The the most amazing part, you know, it it kind of covered the like the generative fill we've seen in in uh, Photoshop that they've released in the beta, but they showed some new stuff that we hadn't seen before. That uh, they showed a guy with uh, out a tie, and uh, it was video, and they. They uh, then brought in a tie to to him. I won't show the video so we don't get taken down. But as the video plays, that tie that it uh, added to his shirt there uh, moves with him as he moves, and the lighting changes on it, which is what's really amazing, uh, that it actually copies the surrounding lighting and affects the pixels of the generative of the generative tie in there, and it doesn't get all swimmy like it does with, uh, you know, uh, stable diffusion or any of the other other generative AI video uh, things right now. So they've they've conquered that issue. Uh, so they generate one model, and apparently as a three D model, and then tie it to the moving pixels in the video. That was really amazing. Go, ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I like it a lot. The the tie example, the, he has two collars in there, so that that was not the 
best example for them. But uh, when, when it comes to taking out small things in the background, it makes perfect sense when you start to get into the foreground stuff or you start to get to the uh, like faces or anything like that. And that's always a problem I've always had with generative fill is they try to put more people into the shot. And it's like, I don't want those people in the shot. I want to keep it. Uh, I, want to, I want you to have something a little bit more than that. So I have a feeling it's, it, it, well, it's, it's far from out. I don't think they have any release dates set as of yet. But from what I've seen for simple edits, simple fixes, it, it looks really nice. And, and I know that there's a lot of apps out there now that uh, do the same thing. And Google, Google's uh, Pixel also has uh, removal options. But I don't know if you can choose, oh, I, I don't want people there. I want a whale there or anything like that. I had a client, you know, I had a 16 by 9 um, image that I needed to make, and the client gave me an, a, a wide shot, you know, widescreen, 235 instead of 16 by 9. And I just needed to extend it out. And it's truly amazing. Like, I just selected it with a couple pixels overlap and just said, you know, extend and grab the bottom one and say extend. You could not tell. <laughs> like, like, it was just, it just extended it perfectly and just kind of, it's it to me. It's not the how do we make a new movie with AI or how do we replace actors with AI. It's just this constant, like I just need to fix one little thing. I just need to move this over. I need to remove, you know, get this out of the way, um, extend this out. It's it's amazing. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I think one of the funnest one I saw was somebody took the album cover to uh, Thriller. Remember oh, Michael no. Jackson kind of laying there, and they just kept going out and out and out and out and let the AI interpret what the rest of the photo would have been. And in, in this particular example, he was laying down, getting a pedicure, and there was cameras around him. It was, it was ridiculous. It was quite fun. <laughs> I got to see that. I, you got to do that with Sergeant Pepper. Uh, <laughs> like to see what's a little Sergeant hyperbaric Pepper. chamber off to the side. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, great. It's good. It's very good. Um, next question. Next one coming in from Roscoe Jones in Provincetown, Massachusetts. What do you think of this video tutorial on the basics of switchers? Yeah, I scanned through this. I saw this last night, and um, it, it looks pretty good. It looks like a pretty good. Um, it was a little. It could have gone a little faster, I think, but but it was. Um, but it wasn't that long. I think it's like a ten minute video. Uh, and then I went in and found a whole bunch of other ones. That's what happens with me as I get into photo, and then I saved them all. So I'm, I'm now I'm going to sit down and watch a whole bunch of them, just how people describe switchers. Um, but I thought I thought it wasn't bad. Um, I would. I would check it out. He had a, there's a link there. Um, it's always good to look at these um, to see how other people describe what that looks like. And um, yeah, I would check it out. Um, next question. From West Decker in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm a photogrammetry hobbyist using Apple's Reality Composer and Reality Composer Pro. Like to invest a little more, 500 to $1,000, to get better results scanning items that are 2 by 2 by 2 Any ideas for lighting, tripod rigs for the iPhone, etc.? And this came in from the QR code. Um, the uh, uh, yeah, so a couple things that you want to think about there. Uh, and I'm experimenting with a little of it right now. But one of the things is a turntable. So um, think about having a turntable that you can put things on and turn them. I believe that the new Reality Composer. There's other software that I use that you can um, use the turntable and then and then use that to and still get the. It'll know that you were turning it, so it just keeps on realigning that. Um, and especially if you, what you have to do is mask that out. And I'm using MetaShape Meta to do that, so it's a little bit different than than your standard one. But but I I'm gonna I'm working on with Reality Apple's Reality Composer is to do that with Reality Composer with a turntable. So you put your object on the turntable. That way you can keep your camera where it needs to be, and then you simply turn it around um, as it goes. 
the um, and then I and I believe because of the way that Apple's showing, I haven't been as successful at it yet with the composer of being able to kind of flip objects around. But Apple's software seems to understand that it's you know it's asking you to flip something and then you flip it. So so a lot of this stuff seems to be where it needs to go, and I just haven't had enough time to really dig into it as deeply as I'd like to. The um, but the turntable is important, big soft lighting. So for two by two, you can get these soft boxes that have lights that are kind of on the outside of them and then build build that out so you have kind of a nice soft lighting uh, for the object. And you only have to do that from one angle if you do this turntable process so you don't have to go around it. Now, one thing that I'm still surprised hasn't happened, we, we had somebody who's um, watching the show that started to go down this path, but I, I think it got t- too complicated. But but I think that one thing that I'm kind of missing is the ability to have multiple cameras, multiple iPhones, be able to be, you know, connected together um, because, you know, and, and be able to just say fire, you know, what you want to do is you want to time the turntable with the firing of, let's say, three iPhones at one time. So you can just hit and it just goes click, 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 click. As it goes around, it just, it just fires all of them at the same time. Um, and, uh, and then accumulate, you know, pulls those photos back and processes them, it'd be a lot faster. It's for as a hobbyist, it's not that big of a deal right now. But when you start thinking, I want to have all the objects in my store built into a 3D object, and you have some someone you're paying 20 bucks an hour in the back doing it, um, you want to start thinking about mass production. And usually that means more cameras at more angles. Um, that's how you kind of speed things up again. Good, Courtney. Yeah, you could do, and there's there's a lot of things on uh, Amazon and eBay about uh, for for eBay photographers that are these kind of little photo studio setups that are two by two. This one's thirty two inches by thirty two inches and has built in lighting, etc. You could put your turntable at the bottom of that and put your camera on a tripod out in front and program it to uh, take pictures. This one has uh, three customizable LED panels, etc., to even light and uh, different backgrounds, etc. So there's a lot of things like that that are set up for the people that want to, you know, put stuff on eBay and photograph it and just take something like that that will keep even lighting and rotate your object in front to do your photogrammetry. Good. Uh, Next question. Next question for Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. I ran across an old video of my wife on local TV discussing Bear Aware for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. All of the advertisers are now out of business all of them. Discuss, please. Grandfather's world, grandfather's tech, grandfather's tropes. I go ahead, Chris. Am I the only one who read this as beer aware? I thought this was going a totally (laughs) different direction. I'm sorry, Jack. Good. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yes, a whole bunch of beer commercials. Uh, So that's my uh, recommendation to you is if you can digitize that those commercials, there are a whole bunch of YouTubers, if it's really good quality, that are looking for stuff like that so they can make compilations of uh, old commercials, old advertisers, and uh, and put that on. So that would be if if you want to do it. Uh, other than that, just enjoy the moment, and and uh, it's always great to actually see videos of of you and and family members from years ago. Next question. Next one in from Matt Cool in Montreal, California, uh, Canada. Sorry, um, are you covering NAB from New York City this week? Uh, we we will have some folks in after hours doing it. We don't have as much of a formal schedule as we were. We had some funding issues that made it hard for us to kind of ma- ma- manage that. So we are uh, realigning for uh, NAB 
um, uh, Las Vegas. Um, but we, st- we, you know, I think we will have some people jumping in from from there into after hours. So stay tuned, probably for some informal announcements. Next question. And we have another question coming in on our QR QR code. It's from Jury D. Chant Varshbotnik, sorry, uh, of uh, Swissvale. Jeffrey, did you make a decision on what to do with the gear you were asking about? And did you make a nice donation to a nice charity? Or is it the final outcome still pending? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So thanks for the question there, Diordi. Uh, so basically it, what it is, uh, I had a uh, ATEM 4K production studio, which I don't use anymore. It's It's been sitting, I, I used it back in, what, 2016, bought it. And yeah, actually I did sell it on eBay. And uh, it's going to a guy who actually builds fly kits using the, uh, the the production switchers. So uh, it's got a good home. I knew it. It still had value uh, to somebody. And uh, normally, as for donating stuff, my my, my thing is, if I buy it, I'm going to try and, and sell it. If I do sell it, I have a hard time selling anything. Uh, but uh, if it was something that I was given as a review model or anything like that, I, I would have given it away uh, as well. But uh, I, I want to thank everybody who did uh, call out and ask uh, what what the status is going to be because uh, I know there was a few people that would have loved to see that in their uh, in their. Uh, productions uh for their uh churches or whatever so but uh, yeah i had to i had to make a few dollars on it because i've got a pending move myself that i have to do i go ahead john jeffrey turned down my offer of a thousand dogecoin i shouldn't have it's starting to everything's starting (laughs) to come back up so next question I have a question, uh, and it is Western Digital has a class action suit that claims that some units randomly erase all the data. Um, how can that be? Good, Courtney. Well, it could be it uh, doesn't erase all the data. It just loses access to the data if the head falls off or uh, uh, it messes up the file allocation table. This was against their red drives, which were their NAS drives. Uh, the, the lawsuit has settled, so... If you weren't involved, uh, December 31st was the last time, I think, to claim your uh, claim your money uh, of last year. So uh, uh, you're out of luck if you're trying to get in on it now. Uh, so it was against a specific type of drive used, uh, a red drive used for NASA's with Western Digital. It was a class action suit against Western, Western Digital uh, that was settled. Next question. Michael Marsh from San Anselmo asking, archiving old floppy disks on a Mac. Reader only recognizes MS-DOS format. Modern Mac OS can't read legacy Mac format. Is there software that can read these disks? Good, Bill. There might be, but the software-hardware nexus of things, particularly before OS X came in, because that was pretty much a ground-floor rewrite of the entire operating system. So I, I think your best bet is to have somebody with an old computer that is pre-that transition era who has all the uh, routines in that old computer to read these. I think this might be a case where you probably have the best results going to one of the archive recovery places who maintain old machines and old operating systems that speak the language of those old things, floppy disks. Those 3.5 inches on Macs are pretty robust, and the, the data is probably still there unless they've been stored really badly. So fingers crossed, but I would go to a pro for this. Go ahead, Jeffrey. 
You can put Linux on it. Uh, so if there is there was a way that you can read disks, but I think it's NTFS, that now I'm really thinking about it. Uh, there's uh, commands you can run to actually uh, make that uh, come up. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you've got an older Mac, you can uh, try something like VMware Fusion mm-hmm. or uh, or try to do the, the dual boot uh, to a Windows unit. But other than that, just find a Windows machine and, and, uh, and try and copy them from there. Go ahead, Chris. I find this amazing and shocking and very un-Apple. I did not realize that there was such a a change in the OS that they couldn't that it couldn't read an old disk. And I got to say, uh, Courtney, this is this is your best. I hate Apple ammo ever. <laughs> it's the it was the transition between the. Um uh, Unix system and the huh. so that the system the the Between OS floppy seven drives. and OS nine and OS yeah. ten yeah yeah it was no, OS nine and OS ten yeah. yeah it was it was when they moved to the to Unix that they could they changed the entire file architecture so it's well, Courtney I give you permission to use this against me forever Courtney real quick yeah I used to use a thing called Mac Disk uh, it may still be available I don't know if it runs on a modern version of Windows but it runs on a Windows machine that reads those HFS floppies uh, which is how they used to to uh, format the the floppy disks on the Macintoshes before OS 10 so you might see if Mac Disk version 8 is still available and uh, run it on an old Windows machine and you can then get that data off of those old Mac disks next question Douglas Carmichael here with a question. There are strong rumors that we're going to see an Apple Mac announcement next week. What do you think? We'll see. Good, Mitchell. Something with an M3, I think. Jeffrey? Yeah, there's uh, rumors about the iMac line getting an update into the M3 realm. Um, nothing. It, usually it's where iPads uh, start to get, or the lower end iPads start to get their updates, but uh, I haven't heard anything about that yet. Next question. Daniel Patridge from Rochester, Minnesota. The other day I mentioned the on-demand HDR feed for weekend and Q&A was washed out colors on Firefox on the Mac. Just found out by accident that the colors return normal if you go full screen in Firefox. Strange but good, I guess. Yeah, so the, what's happening there most likely is that Firefox is managing the color when it's not full screen and then it's handing it off to um it's handing it off to apple to handle it when you go into full screen so it's changing mode and it's l- giving it back to apple apple can support hdr what that means is that firefox is doing something where it's trying to manage all that color in its own inside of its own browser um, and so and you'll notice this in a couple different places where frame rate might get better a lot of other things get better when you go full screen but it, oftentimes the apple will turn off everything you know all the other screens and it'll it kind of goes into a different mode but it's handing they're handing that video off to to the the os to, to make that um playback and that will fix it uh, it should work fine inside of uh chrome and safari uh firefox is a little behind in their support of hdr um so anyway so th- so that but i think that that's that's what you're seeing there next question Michael Tan from San Diego, California. For Office Hours, isn't there a search engine that when you search something like ATAM, all the questions related to ATAM will show from general questions? Good guy. So it's not super um, uh, up to date, but if you go to the site Filmot, and then you can pump in the term and the channel, and it'll bring up every time that that word was, and this is scraped off the metadata and the the subtitles that are automatically generated in YouTube, and you can do this with any uh, channel. And uh, you can see here that, uh, like in this one, focus on behind the scenes ruthless, 
if we hit that, we can jump, we can jump right to that video at that point in time when, when the word ATEM is mentioned. So on any of these videos, uh, so that's one way. I don't know of any other way, but this is one way. And again, the data is not up to date, like as of yesterday or something like that. It's, it's a couple months old, but that's one way of going out about finding old content. Next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama City, Panama. Has anyone seen the new Elgato prompter? It seems to be limited to only a computer. What are your thoughts on this product? Is it worth it? Go ahead, John. Jonas Tatel has one. He's going to be on the show on Friday, and he's got it connected. He really likes it, but he'll be on Friday. Good, Bill. I'm coming around to the idea. I think it's a positive thing, uh, a simple thing that takes all the processing load off of your computer and essentially puts it in the teleprompter. Probably be useful for a lot of people if you don't have brand new equipment and a lot of power. Good, Mitchell. For a small teleprompter, I think that it's all in the mounting capability, and they seem to kind of push you towards buying their Elgato camera. Um, I like the idea that the uh, the home stream, my iCan, for example, fits on the front of the lens like a uh, matte box, and I think that's the best way to mount a small teleprompter. Yeah, I, I, um, they do have other ways. You know, they, they built a lot of other solutions so you can put pretty much any camera back there. I mean, obviously their own webcam pops right in, but they have SLR and they, if you look a little lower, they, they have those additions there. I, uh, I will be interested to see if it's only a computer direct connection because if it's not, um, it, it is, uh, I can't use it because I, I have a sub, a whole HDMI subsystem. Courtney, I know you want to say something. I had locked the question. Go ahead. Yeah, it is a USB-C is the only wire that comes out of that monitor and it connects in and it, ha it re requires the display uh, display port drivers. So it sets up a virtual yeah. video card in your PC. So it does, Bill, it does put a lot of more strain on your computer because it's got to process all that video for that external, mo that external yeah. monitor out there as a, a virtual video card. I think I was swirling around it until I saw that it, I suddenly realized, oh, I'm not going to be able to connect an HDMI to it or any version of HDMI. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, that's that for me. Like, I think it could be useful for other people, but I need it. It has to be. I have so many subsystems I can't have a teleprompter that I can't just route to. Um, next question. Chester Sweeney with a QR code question. He's from Las Vegas, Nevada. I've been trying original ways or places to record, and I was wondering, has anyone ever recorded a band or singer inside an igloo? I don't know, but but I you know the idea of of recording inside of an igloo in Las Vegas just is kind of breaks my mind. You know, like I just I don't even know what to, what to do there. It's really hot, hot in Vegas. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I, the weird thing about this is that igloos are basically a parabola, which means that you're going to get weird reflections kind of focused on one spot. I don't know, you know, one of our audio guys from our Wednesday shows would probably be better to talk about this, but I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You may get something like a parabolic microphone effect happening as things bounce off the dome yeah. shape of the igloo and hit one spot. Unless it was soft enough. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I don't shoot in an igloo, build an igloo set. Yeah, <laughs> it's a neat look, but don't, I know. no. Let's try it. Let's try it. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, shooting it inside any domed uh, structure is going to be problematic. They have this problem now with these virtual sets with LED, curved LED walls uh, on Mandalorian. They had a big problem getting the sound because there's focal points where you know somebody could say something way over in the corner there, and if the mic's at the focal point, it'll pick up those people that are off camera just muttering to each other. So very big problem with uh, focusing sound reflecting off a smooth surface. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Plus, you have the vibration, which could cause the whole structure to go, go crumbling down. So, yeah, probably not a good idea to build the set. They're pretty stable structures if you build them traditionally. Um, next question. 
Tim Holm from San Lorenzo asking, I often notice that on network news, while the anchors are listening to the guest or in general, they have dead eyes. What are some techniques to allow you to look more engaged with the other party online? That's the QR code question, by the way. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Having had some news training in college and the rest of that, there, you know, one of the roles of a host is to maintain neutrality. You're not supposed to be nodding at some points and looking confused at other points. And I think at least in the training that I had when I was young about news, uh, you were supposed to be the neutral observer. You weren't supposed to react positively or negatively, no matter what was being said, because that's not your job. That's the audience's job to do that. Now, we've gone away from that in the modern news thing, and there are certainly newsatorial channels that are there to commentate on whether they think an idea is good or bad when everybody says something. But that wasn't the origin of news training. It used to be your goal is to be the neutral observer. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, we're just uh, complicated uh, biological computers, and when our buffers begin to overload, our eyes kind of glaze over as we're trying to process too many uh, bits of data coming from different directions. And when somebody's talking in your ear while you're talking or listening to somebody that you're interviewing, um, it's tough to maintain your thought. You have to sort of segment or compartmentalize what's going on, one part of your brain or the other, and that's a tough thing to learn to do. Good, Courtney. Yeah, the, uh, after the question is asked is when the producer is going to get in the ear of the person of the interviewer and say, you know, take them in a different direction or give them instructions. So they may be trying to process information other than what they're, uh, the rest of the world is listening to. Or they may be looking at the teleprompter, which shows, you know, bullet points of the next question coming up. So they're preparing their next question while the person is answering the first question. So they do look distracted rather than paying attention a lot of times to the answer that the person they're interviewing is giving. Yeah, the number one reason that they look dead-eyed and the reason that their panelists look dead-eyed is because they don't have teleprompters. And so they, I mean, they don't have Interatron setups, so they're not looking at the person. So when you look at them looking at, they're looking in the direction of the camera and nodding. And in general, that's actually what's happening for even the folks that are coming in remotely. So if you're looking at a CNN thing and there's people coming in from Chicago or whatever, they're not looking at a teleprompter the way we oftentimes look at the teleprompter here because we, a lot of us have um, a, a teleprompter set up. Uh, that's too expensive to do the return feed. <laughs> and so, so anyway, so they, so they get, and they, they get a teleprompter they're looking at. And as a result, their eyes, so the dead eyes that you're talking about is the result of not, um, the eyes are not, uh, um, they're not coming to the, to the lens. So they're, they're looking at a direction, um, but they're not constrained. They're not coming into the lens because we, our eyes actually um, converge just a little um, when we look at other people and we see that we've noticed this when we do in Teratron is we notice people's eyes converge um, in a way that doesn't happen when they're just looking at a camera and that has a different feel to it. And so I think that, that that's probably what you're feeling is they're just looking straight. They're looking at a camera, not directly into the camera because they're because they don't see anybody over there. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, the Twitch simulcasting guidelines bans tools that uh, combine activity from other platforms like merging chat and present it to the user. Could this be a blow to multi-streaming tools like Restream? I go ahead, Jeffrey. Not really. It's actually been, they've, they've done this for the last few months. Uh, I've I, when I use Restream, they just basically say you can't watch the chat. It's nice because uh, before I had like four or five chats open, and you just got to open up the uh, uh, you got to just got to open up that the Twitch chat, and if you don't want it, you just don't uh, put it in there. Simple as that. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, if you uh, one of the problems, of course, is that is that they could turn off the API, and, and other companies and others might turn off the API. You also get penalized sometimes when you ask for people to ask questions somewhere else, and you put the link into Twitter or or X or or uh, YouTube or other things. YouTube's own chat system is so painful to use as an API that only a few can do it. Now there is one way to get around this. Because they can manage the metadata, but they don't really look at the video image. So if you put up, let's say, a QR code, or where, where's that? Cue the QR code. If you put up a QR code and ask for the questions, they don't have any way to search for that yet. So, so anyway, so putting a QR code in a in a video and asking for questions allows you to merge those questions without using their API. Hmm. I wonder who would who would ever do such a thing? Oh, wait, we would. <laughs> so anyway, now you understand a little bit more about why the QR code and the link that we're putting in for the Q&A is, is coming forward uh, is because it allows us to basically work around all those issues. So anyway, we've got uh, Eric Geisler here in just a minute. A quick reminder uh, that uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about how to m choose a mixer. So how to choose an audio mixer. There's analog mixers and big mixers and little mixers and field mixers. And we're going to talk about how we make that decision and, and, and which ones make sense for which things. Uh, on Thursday, we have Color Lab AI. Um, so Dato um, Valentic is going to be here, and he's the chief scientist there at, at, um, at, at Color Lab. And he's going to be here talking about what Color Lab does. It does basically some automatic rating that you can then adjust um, and kind of let you match shots and pull things together and give them looks. And so it looks really, really interesting. And it'll, it'll be great to have Dato here um, on Thursday. On Friday, the, um, we are going to have the Zoom team back. So the broadcast team from Zoom, that's Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocotella, and Sam um, uh, Kokaiko will all be here. And they will be talking about um, what it took to put on Zoomtopia, that great wall that was back there. They were using Unreal Engine and a lot of other things there. And going to break down exactly how they did that. So stay tuned for that later in the week. And let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour. And uh, it is, uh, it's really, really good to have Eric Geisler here. Hey, Eric, can you, can you hear us? Okay. Oh, I can hear you. Great. Excellent. And Eric uh, is, um, he's a two-time Emmy winner um, and, a, and really an authority in post-production. And he has, um, he has a, he's an award-winning creative director, producer for five uh, primetime television Emmy uh, award nominations and over 25 years of working in computer animation, visual effects in film and television. And Eric and I have known each other off and on for 30 years? Is that close? Close? That's very close. It's very close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we were having uh, lunch the other, the other day and we just realized like how long it had gone back, you know, and uh, we were at the, there was a, um, the infamous electric image. Uh, user yeah, group. User group. There was a user group in, in was it Santa Monica? Is that, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Well, actually the, there was one of the Beverly Hills Hotel yeah, where we I think we first met, and then it was regularly in Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah and and so we 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 uh, there, there was a um, we we talk about the the John Knoll shot. There was a John Knoll shot from Mission Impossible that he showed that literally changed the entire visual effects industry. <laughs> like like John just kind of casually showed us how he did rendering in layers, and and no yeah. no one had thought of that. So um, tell us a little bit from from that point on, Eric. Uh, give us a little bit of your of your background or what your, what your path's been over the last 25 years? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I, I kind of fell into visual effects and, and post-production by accident, honestly. Um, when I started, you know, I came, I came to Los Angeles from uh, Michigan. I was originally from Michigan and my parents 
uh, moved around a little bit, uh, ended up in Texas. And then finally in 1980, we came to Los Angeles and uh, I was going to school and some of my friends were acting. And so I sort of was dabbling in acting and did some, you know, a little bit of acting here and there on, on old TV shows and sitcoms and stuff. And uh, I was really bored, you know, sitting around waiting as an actor, you, you literally wait for everything. And I would just the, the walk set, up to the set moves so much slower than everyone thinks. Oh, it's so like, slow. <laughs> it's just a lot of boredom's punctuated by terror and then back to boredom. Yeah. That's right. And so, but I would be fascinated with what was happening behind the camera and all the technicians and craftsmen and artisans and all of the stuff that's happening. So I would hang out and start talking to them and got really, that's what sort of got me, you know, the bug of filmmaking uh, bit me at that point. And then, you know, at that point, I was really, I had like two, there was two parts that I really loved art, you know, and, and, and illustration and design. Um, and I had been working for um, a, a friend of my parents uh, was a rep for, for illustrators. Um, and they got me like an, an internship with an illustrator guy by the name of Joe Spencer. He was an airbrush artist very you know prolific airbrush artist um he worked with uh you know a bunch of other these you know illustrators at the time they suggested that i go to art center in pasadena i went to art center got accepted and started going to, to school at a very expensive very terrifying school art center is like <laughs> yeah incredibly competitive right and i didn't yeah. really you know, I thought I was, I'm a good artist, right? I'm this and that. And you get to the school and it's like, I liken it to being, you know, you think you're really good, a good ball player in, in, in high school. And then you get to college and you have to play college ball and you're like, oh, wow, I, I really thought I was good. But now I'm sitting next to like the, the future ball players of, of the NBA. And so Art Center was really competitive. It was really tough. And I was really questioning whether that was the right choice. But at that time they had just gotten this grant and had gotten a ton of computer graphics equipment and their computer lab was fledgling. What so, was what, what uh, this was like, this was like 86. Yeah. 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 87. And they just got like SGI had just donated like a ton of equipment. And so I went, I went into the computer lab one night and I met this, this guy, his name was Sandeep Sakura and he was, explaining to me like wavefront right and, and how wavefront worked and and i was just mesmerized and and that's sort of like got me very very interested in the industry and but i was also you know working as an illustrator um with this this gentleman joe spencer and and he you know i would i would do a lot of prep work for him you would you would cut these masks with friskets with like blades and stuff and 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 then i started working doing darkroom work so it was a darkroom tech one of my early jobs i worked for a company called wallen green design they did a lot of movie posters and stand-ups and standees and stuff and so there's a technical background to like to, to darkroom work where you're doing, you're using all these complicated cameras. We're making like photo stats and stuff. And so you're learning cameras, you're learning technology um, and art. And then I started learning a bit about computer graphics and it all sort of started to sort of coalesce and, and come together. I, I do feel like there's something lost in, uh, there's something lost when you don't do the analog part. Like a lot of us grew up 
old enough that, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours. I was the darkroom head for my yearbook, um, you know, and so I developed all of the, all of the photos. I didn't, I wasn't one of the, I was a little bit of a control personality. So I didn't let anybody else <laughs> for that yearbook develop, <laughs> develop a, um, uh, uh, any of the stuff. I developed every single image that, that came in and I could, you know, I can still smell Dectol if I think about it, you know, like, you know, and the kind of the chocolatey, uh, smell of that, of Dectol and, the uh but the but i think that there was something about number one is it taking that kind of time and understanding also when photoshop comes out you understood what all there's so many terms in photoshop or e even in our modern era even you know the like people don't know it's like splines we th we talk about splines splines were metal rods used to build ships <laughs> you know like right. they, you know and and the knots and the weights were like tied onto them and used to pull those metal splines to form the outside of the ship so a lot of these terms are are things that are very very old um and we still are kind of bridging but the new generation just they're just oh, a button, right? I like rotoscoping. Nobody knows what rotoscoping is. I mean, I used to sit there on a down shooting camera and you would yeah. have to put you would have to put the, the projector in the lens <laughs> and shoot down onto a table and draw your mat. You were drawing a mask right onto this platen. It was it was insane, yeah. you know? Every so, frame. Every, every frame. frame. It was frame by frame. <laughs> I mean Yeah. You yeah. know, animation, you know, I, I was, I, I got, I was, I was early on in the animation industry and because I had an illustration background, I would often be hired to do um, what were what called keys, right? Yeah. And so a key illustration in animation terms is you draw an illustration about yay big, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you're drawing it to send it off to, usually it was Korea or, or somewhere, you know, to, to, to draw a bigger illustration, but this is what the color key is supposed to look like. These were all the colors and everything was supposed to be. So I got a job working on this little show. It was a company called Klasky Supo. They were this little animation house and it was this little animation show for the Tracy Allman show and it was called The Simpsons, right? <laughs> so I got to work on the first season of The Simpsons. Um, but the, the, pro the process, the amount of work that would go into just a short little few seconds right yeah you you had to do so much prep and so much uh uh experimentation just to get those few seconds on film and you learn so many of these processes and now you know everybody takes it for granted <laughs> yeah. yeah no absolutely well and, and as you're working today what are the things that you're the most excited about in in the in our industry right now i mean i'm really i'm really excited about uh, capture. Um, so well, you're out there capturing right now. You're capturing a lot of 3d objects, right? Yes. So, so capture and, and I don't really like to call it AI. I like to call it machine assisted, you know, technologies. It, it's not for me, it's, it's, it's what the computer's always been good at, which is accelerating your visual feedback. So it's this feedback loop as an artist, you always want, you put something out, and you, you see what the result is and you're always tweaking and refining those things. And back in the early days, you remember this, like you would render something, it would take hours, right? Just, just, just to see, just to see an image. Um, yeah. Remember, remember rendering little regions of 
pixels where you could just change. You know, I, I, I think that the people like when, when people, when I see people render something now, they'll render, they'll turn all the things on and then render it. Yeah. And they'll be sitting there in the middle of the afternoon, like not doing anything. I'm like, why aren't you doing something? And they're like, well, I'm rendering. And I'm like, okay, no. No, this isn't, this is like, we can't do it this way. Cause we used to go back and, and, and this is a process, right? Is to, we would do all of our animation, make sure we we're really happy with the animation with, and we turned everything off until it was sometimes wireframe so that we could see that animation going nice and smoothly. And then, and then we did to what Eric's talking about. We render these little squares and you render like a piece of, for me, it was like a piece of the queen ship. Like I would just render like a little section, like, is this working? Is this working? And then if I know it works here and I know it works here and the animation, you know, looks like it could work, I might render, render a test over lunch. This, but still like a little potion stamp of those things. Yeah. And that's, that's come a long way, right? Oh my God. I mean, I remember the first time I saw, I think it was, and I didn't use Lightwave, but, but it was in Lightwave. I think Whirly Labs had this thing, I think it was called F, F, I forget what it was called, but it was, it was the first time you had like a little postage stamp size version of your render, but it was real, real time updating, right? Yeah. yeah. You could see it uh, iteratively. And I was like, wow, that's the future. That's well, and I remember um, Scott Pascoe at, at, at Electric Image yeah. wrote a radiosity renderer. And the radiosity renderer, of course, is the, is the it's calculating, uh, it's global illumination, right? So it's calculating the, um, the reflection of light off of the walls and then landing on it and how, how all that works. But it would take, I mean, for one radiosity render, just the calculation would be like all night. Like you turn it on and you just go away. And now it's like you watch little pat, you know, in Cinema 4D or whatever, you just watch little patches all, you know, kind of appear all over the place and then they all, they all tie together. So you're, so you're capturing, um, now you're out there with, you're doing photogrammetry and LIDAR? Yeah, we're doing both photogrammetry and LIDAR and we're capturing really high res, um, 360 degree um, images as well that we do panos with uh, using uh, medium format cameras. We're experimenting- yeah, like so. Right now, we're we're our 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 daily driver shooter is the R5 Canon, but we're also we've got the Fuji um, medium format that I think it's the GS uh, two, and then we're we're talking to the guys from Phase One and getting some phase cameras in to experiment with. These are all hundred plus megapixel cameras that are um, intensely large, but. You're also trying to get, because it's photogrammetry, it's like this delicate balance. It's not, the larger sensor doesn't mean it's automatically going to be better. You also are working with optics. So lensing is very important, looking for, uh, you know, things that that reduce any sort of optical diffraction on the edges and, 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 and have very clear optics. That's something that's very important to us as well. So we're, we're really in a, in a big R&D, R&D period right now. Right. Um, to get as much to when we're out at a site, we want to capture as much as we can, just as much as we can, as fast as we can and, and, and future proof that data set for, for, for later on. Yeah. I think that's the tricky thing when people say, well, I don't want to spend a lot of money on something, but I want to go out and shoot. I'm like, well, time is valuable. <laughs> like, you know, like time is like, when are you going? like, and, and again, and a good example is, you know, I shot a bunch of, you've seen some, a little bit of my experimentations in, yeah. in Anchor Watt. And, you know, I shot some of this um, stuff there. And 
I just had the camera that I had with me, which was like a 24 megapixel, you know, old Canon that I shot with. Man, I wish I had shot that with a Sony you know, with 60 megapixels, oh, yeah. you know, or, or with, you know, with something that had a lot more, um, you know, a lot more headroom to it. Um, now, I got a lot of data out of it anyway, but, but I, and I also, I mean, I guess I could have been walking around Anchor Wat, but I was shooting like crazy, like, and, and the, the hard part is also, I'm sure that you run into is that you're dealing with people like you're you're in a public space and so oh, yeah and so you're you're like how do you you got to find the times that you can grab that um it's funny you know the the leicas are really good these little these little things and thank you for turning me on to to leica geosystems they, yeah. it's it's been incredible they have interesting features so this particular camera up here has it'll do two scans and then it'll look for things that are moving because it, it knows points that are there from the previous scan right. and it will isolate those points for you. So when you go to clean the data, you actually, it, it, it's smart about it to a degree. You still have to go in there and, and, and futz around with it, but it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and how are you, are you doing much where you're mixing the photogram, the, the structured light and the unstructured light? So you're taking the, you have, you have the LIDAR, which is the structured light, and then you have the unstructured photographs. Uh, how are you kind of combining those two together? Well, there's three, we're doing it in three ways. So, so we take, we take the, the point cloud data that we get from the, the scans. We go in and do just a ton of photogrammetry on the scene. So if we're like, if we're in a room, we'll just, we'll just shoot the heck out of it from as many angles as we can possibly get. And then we'll go in to the, to the details, to the surfaces. And we have a rig that, that is, cross-polarized so we use cross-polarized light or we Can have explain cross-polarized yeah so we have so the light the light source and the lens have polarization filters on them um and what we're doing is uh the best way to describe it is whatever ambient lighting that exists we, ex we our exposure is well below that so we're we're dropping down to the floor we're like you know iso 100 um you know we're trying to get no no ambient light and then we have very bright flashes and the two flashes sit on the side of the camera in between the lens and they have a polarization filter on it. And the lens also has a polarization filter on it in the opposite direction. And so what that does is it gives you a light ambient light that doesn't have any reflectance values at all. So you're not getting sheen or, or reflection on surfaces. So you're just getting the pure color of the surface. Um, it's bizarre when you look at the photography, when you look at uh, cross-polarized photography, it looks looks a little strange. But what it does give you is it gives you the color characteristics of a surface and it allows you to extract that uh, and create texture maps. And then when you put all, the, all that data together, you have a very dense point cloud that you get. You then take, and photogrammetry is, is essentially you're taking a bunch of different photographs you're, you're estimating the camera positions of those photographs in the computer and then generating uh, a sparse point cloud of those camera positions. And then when you merge all that data together, you get some pretty fantastic uh, looking stuff. And, and, and it's, again, we're still in the early stages of, of our pipeline, but it, the, the initial proof of concept stuff is, is incredible. But again, yeah. we have to capture stuff at like just mind-boggling amounts of data it's terabytes per location i have one that i shot i i said i have this one scene in in uh from india that i shot i, I found a, a block 
like a city block that was inside of a city block in, in India in the Spice District in old, old Delhi. And so I shot it. I just went around and shot 100 and some photos and 190 photos or whatever. And uh, in pretty organized. So, you know, I moved to a lot of photogrammetry. And to this day, I can still send it to most people. If you turn all the everything all the way up. And there's a couple of PCs now, and I think the new Mac will survive it. But up until like a year ago, I mean, I shot this like, I don't know, six years ago. Up until about a year ago, if you turn the dials in Metashape all the way up, it would just crash. <laughs> like eventually. Oh, yeah. Like it no, would eventually I... just, it would just, it would just, it would, it would go for three days and then it would just on a PC or Mac and it would just heat the, it would heat the CPU up to a point where it just <laughs> went, I'm just going to restart. You're like, I just can't, like, I can't do that anymore. And, and the, um, uh, so, but what's incredible about photogrammetry is we get down to like, you know, some of the stuff in AnchorWatt, I got the texture of the stone. You know, it's it's only limited by the resolution of your camera. I remember talking to Greg Downing about this, you know, and this is, I talked to Greg Downing about this like 15 years ago, and he was just like, well, photogrammetry is going to take over because it's, you know, he said, because we can do LiDAR and we can do all these other things, but you're going to get down to the point where you're only limited by the resolution of the camera. The problem is, is that it's keeping all of that on the the skeleton of the LIDAR. The LIDAR gives you scale. It gives you position. It gives yep. you, you know, it gives you structure so that that, because the the problem is, is that the, the, the photogrammetry, right, can warp out of, out of phase, especially as you do multiple captures. You know, it becomes harder to keep in, keep structured, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the thing is that the photogrammetry is really detailed, as you said, but it does, unless you're, unless you really, test your lenses and you and you figure out how to unwarp your lenses correctly and you know you do the proper testing and you feed that data into the photogrammetry software it's doing its best guess at, at all this stuff right. and it's it's complex math um a lot of trigonometry figuring out what point correlates with another point um but the great thing is when you when you marry the two things together when you take lidar and photogrammetry and put them together now photogrammetry gets a lot better Yep. Because it knows where these points are supposed to be. LIDAR is really accurate. It's like hyper accurate. They use it for, you know, construction measurements and, and all kinds of other, other fields where you have to have accurate measurement. So you're taking accurate, accurate measurement and merging it together. And now all of a sudden it's the estimations that it has to do um, is a lot more accurate. And therefore the, the results are a lot more accurate. Now, where does for you, where do nerfs fit into all of this? It's an interesting question. So, so nerfs now it's Gaussian splats. Right? I know, I know exactly. I was like, <laughs> it's I, evolving we, we, so quickly. Yeah, like, they, um, they thought it was. They thought nerf was too soft. Yeah, know, it's, so too like, soft. Uh, it's a Gaussian splat now. Yeah, yeah, now exactly. it's a splat. So, I mean, this is this is really interesting because a lot of a lot of the higher end environments we were out. We just came back from a trip, and we were capturing. Um, uh, a, a giant location um, for for a television show, and it the the problem with large scale, as you know, is it's you know it's really hard to to build large scale stuff in a real time environment and get it to run in real time. And they needed this to run on some walls, so we had done some experimental nerf photography while we were there, which is similar to photogrammetry. A little bit, you, you're you're shooting it a little bit differently. Um, but we we ended up getting a, a scene running, um, and it looked pretty good. We used Luma, the Luma AI tools inside of Unreal Engine, um, and we got some pretty compelling results. I mean, I don't think it's ready for prime time just yet, um, but it's it's getting really good. And then the 
the thing about Gaussian splats is it takes a, a little one step further. It's just like a it's like a giant dense particle system of cards looking at the camera, and the cards have these you know Gaussian uh, you know dots on them, and it stacks them up in a way that really looks really good and looks like very close to a photograph, and then you can move inside and around a radiance field and, and you really get a sense of depth and things like reflections behave the right way things like um lighting behaves the right way so it's it's very close to being like a production ready uh technology and i think that that the data sets that we're capturing will fit into that i'm i'm experimenting right now with how can i take the gaussian splat database that you would normally use the photography that you would normally use for it and marry it with with what i'm getting off of the leica because then you can marry this high intensity point cloud data with this photography that you've taken and, and hopefully that's going to help the gaussian splatting be a little bit better or the nerf be a little bit better and in some ways, you know, a lot of this stuff's been floating around for a long time. I mean, I can't remember what the, the technology was, but Microsoft was working on this, I don't know, solid 15, 20 years ago. They had this, um, they had a team internally, and I just can't think of the name of the, the team. Bill Crow, I know, ran it, and I just can't think of the name of what it, um, what they were putting together. But it was uh, basically taking, you know, building these 3D models of where photos needed to be and then putting the, oh. you know, attaching the photos to yeah, it. Yeah, they, they were taking, they were using the internet. So they were using everybody's photography. Yeah. And it, I remember it. And, and they would actually go and sample, like if you were, I, I remember them showing Fisherman's Wharf, right? And it was like, here's all the pictures anybody's ever posted online on Fisherman's Wharf. And now yeah. let's use that as a data set. Yeah. And if you, and if you shot your own data set, like I shot one, I, was in a helicopter in Rio and shot um, Christ the Redeemer and I shot hundreds of photos and then you just push it into this, into Microsoft system. But the funny thing was they got so frustrated with me because I was like, I just want the point cloud. Like I was trying to get the point cloud back out so that I could go back to my old ways. And they were like, but it's a beautiful image of like, yeah. this all works. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need that. I just need the, and so I had figured out a way to hack you like as it loaded up the page, I figured out a way to. There's a, like this little thing you could put in your web page that you could hack it out. Oh, like Wireshark or one of those. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're like you, you were just like it would just it would just rip out the 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 the, the center of every photo, um, so that I could get it back. But you know, so a lot of us have thought about this for a long time, <clears throat> but it it sometimes it just takes it takes the technology, it takes the hardware, right? To, in some cases, this is just the the ability for these graphics cards to even manage this, right? I mean, that's it. We're, we're kind of waiting for oh. that. Oh yeah, I mean we're 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 having to order, you know. I just put my order in for a bunch of the 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 Mac cheese graders, fully loaded, like like as as stocked as they can possibly get. Yeah. Um, and we're hoping that we can get, um, you know, some other some other graphics cards. And we're testing everything, like AMD, Nvidia, right. like whatever. It's PC, Mac. It doesn't matter, you know. Linux. It, it, like whatever, whatever we can get to compute these things as fast as we can. Because MetaShape, you know, interestingly enough, and, and in my testing, MetaShape on on the, the 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 Mac, especially with the new generation of of hardware on the Mac, is is pretty compelling. Yeah. Um, just because. The difference is like on the Windows, when you buy a graphics card, you're locked into that memory on the graphics card, right? Your GPU memory is locked into your card. The Mac architecture 
actually shares the, the the memory of the computer with the graphics architecture. Right. And that's a game changer for this type of compute. Yeah, because that was one of the big things that, that I got excited about was that one of the big problems that we run into with the calculations that we just run out of RAM. You just keep exactly. on running out of RAM, you know, like, and so when you have, it just can't hold everything and, and it has to hold all of it in one place to figure out what, you know, to figure out where everything belongs. And so it's really, really interesting. Now, as you capture all of these things, where do you see us going in the next, you know, five years or 10 years? Like, wh where do you see this process moving towards? Well, eventually, you know, screens are going to, are just going to get bigger and, and, and become everywhere as, as, as technology makes, you know, everything cheaper. We're going to have screens. I mean, it's already, it's already started. Like we're already, and we're already in Blade Runner, you know, it's, it's already happening. You go to the mall, you, you know, things are popping out. This is already minority reports already here. So as screen technology gets cheaper, as you know, these Apple vision pro and all these other things are, are coming, as, as these things are getting more more robust, the need to be in a realistic environment, the need to be able to transform yourself into a, an immersive location, we believe is going to be really important. And and there's things from historical preservation. I mean, look at the the story about the Assassin's Creed um, video game that that they scanned Notre Dame and luckily they did because they were able to use it in the restoration of Notre Dame when it burned down. I mean, there's all kinds of compelling reasons for capture, right? Yeah, and so, I think that that's true. It, like that was the scan, right? Assassin, the, a video game basically gave them the data that they needed to rebuild no, Notre Dame because they didn't have that data otherwise, right? Right. I mean, they yeah, could and, only look at photographs. They couldn't see it dimensionally. Yeah. And, and I think that, I do think that now as these tools have gotten a lot easier to use, yeah, just beyond, beyond any of the, um, of the entertainment value or educational value, just preservation of just knowing what it looked like at this moment is, has become, has become really important. Now, are you bullish on the VR stuff? Um, I, I kind of am, but in a different way. I mean, VR has always been, I've been interested in VR since, you know, the nineties, believe it or not. And immersing yourself into something, we do it all the time. We do it in our screens. We do it, you know, I just think that that technology is going to get to the point where it's going to be more of a common use case. You know, when Google glass came out, nobody, nobody it didn't bite, but it needed to happen in order for Oculus to get developed. And that bit a little bit, and that needed to happen in order for, you know, Apple Vision Pro to come to, you know, once we start using these tools and they become commonplace, you know, and it's not just a niche market, I think the, the world of immersive video is only gonna grow and it's going to grow in different ways. We're going to have rooms eventually in our in our in our house where the whole room is just an immersive experience. It's empty, you know, like you yeah. walk around. We we had a uh, we had the luxury of having a um, a thirty six camera motion capture system in our office, and 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 we were doing VR. And this was probably 2016, 2017, and we were doing a bunch of VR work already for Nokia and and Meta and stuff like that, or Facebook at the time, Oculus. And we built a system where we had, you know, outside in tracking, you know, and we just put your headset on and we built a museum. 
you know, like we built a museum that you could walk around in and we took a bunch of little carvings from Africa that I brought back, Shona carvings, but made them three feet high and eight feet high and put them on, on stands and everything else. And you could walk around you know, and look at them. And, and yeah. I was, and when we did it at the time, we were like, this is the future. Like why have a, it was, it looked, it looked and felt so real that now the technology, the problem was, is there was a quarter million dollars of hardware going around the outside edge that needed to be so sorted out because it was out, it was outside in instead of inside out. But, but the, um, but when it's tracked properly, when you can walk around and then we didn't even start, we started to play with it, but adding all the annotations, everything else, you know, it's just the raw. And especially if you look at today's real estate market, these are, there's a, the possibility of having just raw spaces that you can just you know, have as a virtual museum. It's pretty interesting. Oh, no. And I, I was one of the few people that got a chance to visit the void. I don't know if you remember yeah. the void. Yeah. yeah, before, yeah. before it, cause, uh, Cliff was the, the CT CEO of the void. And, and I remember Cliff back from the like Matador parallax days, right? Cliff hired me at ILM. I know. I know. <laughs> Under duress, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I did. I used to demo parallax for him. And Matador for him back in the day, which was, yeah. a, it was this like original paint program that, that would run on the SGI. And it was one of the first tools that you could actually do significant roto with. Um, and that's a real, really great. I feel like Matador is a, Matador is a really good explanation, a good show of, of disruption, like how disruption works. Yeah. Cause you had Matador and then ILM built comp time, which is a, yep. you know, was their own version of Matador in a lot of ways of doing Roto and then a visual effects supervisor at ILM, um, Scott, um, you know, uh, basically commotion, commotion. He, he did, well, he had this thing called Flipbook, And so we would, yep. the only way we could play back um, video to for review was to throw it into Flipbook, and what it would do is it would load all of your frames into RAM, so it would play them out in in full time. And that's the only way you could see a fully rendered piece. And then they started painting on it, and it was commotion. And it just this little Mac app just just blew through everything, right? I mean, it just it, it, it was it, it was so much faster. I was a flame artist at the time, and I was working on the flame and. I remember this job came in and it was so large that we couldn't scale, like we couldn't just get enough flames to, to do the work. And cause it was a lot of paint out and restoration work and, and all this other stuff. And so I ended up calling up Forrest. I'm like, Hey, Forrest, Forrest key, right? He was yeah. the, the, the commotion. I'm like, Forrest, I need like 60 copies of commotion tomorrow. <laughs> He's like, all right, I'll ship them over. And, uh, it was, it was crazy how quickly, and it was so easy to use and it was yeah. so simple and it was just, you know, you just needed a Mac and, and those at that time they were selling those Scully Macs. Remember it was like the, anybody could buy them, could, could, it was like there were Apple had this weird time period where this moment, this moment, moment. where they were licensing <laughs> other people to build hardware, so power, power Mac or whatever was it? Power, power, Mac, power, right. power computing, power computing. That's right. Yeah. Right. And you could buy these, you know, you could buy. So we, and so, you know, it was like, do we spend a million dollars on an Onyx and a couple hundred thousand dollars on, you know, or, yeah. or do we just buy 50 Macs and 50 copies of commotion and just get a, get a crew working on it. And yeah. it was, in, it was like cheaper to do, to do the 50. And a lot of those technologies will come, come and go. And sometimes it's just a function of, the team understand like commotion. The reason it worked was because Scott Squires obviously came out of visual effects, yeah. um, and 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 Forrest really 
He's a really smart guy. He's like one of the smartest people. I just always like, I usually feel like I'm doing okay in a room, you know, and around, do you remember oh. Forrest when he came out with, he had this, like, I'm going to explain to you a DVD about, he explained like visual effects and encoding and all yeah, this yeah. stuff. And it just made me feel so stupid. I know, yeah, exactly. It was so, <laughs> like he really knows this really well. <laughs> yeah, and and the um and and you know the the funny thing is is that uh, like there are things that you know software that companies can miss. So that technology sometimes a lot of the technology depends on people like us to figure out how to make it work. Like for instance, motion was able to do some of the basic things that a flame could do in in two thousand eight, yep. but. The team, you know, that people didn't think of it that way. They thought of it as motion graphics. I was like, I did 105 green screen shots in three weeks, you know, um, you know, uh, with motion on a Mac looping in real time while we while we were pulling the green screens because it could do it. But then it just disappeared. Like it just, you know, like like it, you know, we we moved on and there was not don't, enough. Don't, don't get me started about shake. Don't get me started about. <laughs> Yeah, Man. yeah, but you know, it just it just it, a lot of times the industry. What I think is interesting is that it has to be the right people at the right time, and they have to be able to work through it. It's not just the technology is ready to go. It's not those things. It's, it has to all those ingredients have to have to come together at one time. We've got some 100%. questions. Stacked. I mean, oh, good, good. I was just going to say. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the what was incredible about the, going back to that to that John Knoll showing us the Mission Impossible helicopter. I mean, what was incredible about that was he did it on electric image on his Mac. Yeah. And he and the quality was just as good as what was coming out as is sometimes better than what was coming out of CGM at ILM at the time. And CGM was this giant, there it is. He's got yeah, the box. There it is. There's the box. He's got the box. Oh my God. That's great. Yeah. I mean it's like because it was the holy grail. And, and and at that point it dawned on all of us. It's not it's not just the tools, it's it's the methodology and the people. Like that's yeah. that's what's important. You can use this stuff. John John proves that. Uh, we well, this is not gonna become a John Knoll show. And when we talk anytime you start talking about with people with visual effects shows, you have a bit, bit, bad, bad habit of talking about John Knoll too much. You gotta go back to John. You got it. But but he's like the you know, the 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 OG, you know, and so the um but but like that, yeah, again, that 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 I don't know where the visual effects industry would be if he hadn't shown that airplane, it was, and, and, and it's a throwaway shot in the movie. So the airplane at the end in the clouds, oh you know, just God, the exterior so shot. Amazing. And it just, no one thought of it as a, everyone, no one thought of it as a CG shot. And it was a throwaway shot. Like it's literally on, on air for, if you go to the end of mission, the original mission impossible, there is a 737 in the sky. It, it is not a shot that you would ever think about, but he showed us how he rendered it in passes and it literally, the idea, we would render objects in passes, but we never thought of rendering surfaces in passes. Nope. And then you can adjust all the surfaces in After Effects. So you could go in there and just, just adjust the opacities and, the, and how they go. And now you could do something in real time that you couldn't. And, you know, now it's built into like all the, you know, every piece of software and everything else. But for a long time, Electric Image was the only one that did that because John had asked for it, you know. And so so you, we were the only ones that could do it in the 90s. And then Cinema 4D started getting a little bit... For, for, and Cinema 4Ds now is very complex, like what they can oh, do. Yeah. And Maya finally kind of like hacked it in. It was some kind of... Maya's was a mess for a long time. And so, um, and so that, but, but it, but there was this change in the way that everybody thought. They went from you know, just kind of slowly bled out into the world of this is the way to do that thing. And now we're, now we're back to not doing that. You're doing it in real time, but, but it's a, it was really an interesting moment. We got some questions. Uh, it, 
Oh, go, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, just a comment on that is, is it goes back to that feedback loop. Like he was figuring out how to hack yeah. a way for him to be able to adjust things without having to re-render and re-render and re-render. Well, and, and bringing old stuff in. Like he was basically doing what you do with a motion control camera. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. Eric, our first question comes to us from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Can you discuss Timecode 2000 film editing and sound design and how this technique may be used in 2023 and beyond? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was a weird experimental movie. Um, and it, it's interesting because the whole movie played out in, in quadrants. So the whole movie was split. So you had four simultaneous stories going concurrently. Um and we, when we got it, I was working at a post company that, that worked on it um, after, sort of after the editing and the sound design was kind of complete. So, so my experience on that movie was mostly in the finishing side. However, I did get to work with the editors and, and the people who, who were making the movie. And what was interesting about it is that they, they had done four different edits Right. So four completely different cuts that they would then the four editing teams would come together and look at these their cuts together and figure out how the stories intersected and they would work out where the story intersections were. And then it all played out kind of simultaneously. So it was it was a really different kind of experimental, you know, film. Um, when we got it, it was, of course, you know, it's four four movies in one trying to piece it all together and, and, and get it all to, to sort of be cohesive color wise and, and, and all the other stuff. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, uh, with the increase in processing power in mobile devices and on the desktop, what changes can you see in the creative landscape? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good one. There's lots of changes in the creative landscape, especially with, with, uh, uh, mobile devices that the I'm, I'm using um, mobile devices right now with the Leica scanners and some of the things that you can do on the mobile apps um, in real time are very, very much equivalent to what you're doing on, you know, desktop things that take equal amounts of time. And in some cases, what I can do on an iPad with this scanner is faster than the desktop version. Um, so I think eventually as these mobile processors start to get faster and faster, um, you're going to see, you know, a, a lot of compute power in a very small location. Yeah. And I, you know, it's one thing to bring the scanner in, but oftentimes, you know, I'll be sitting there looking at, um, you know, we were looking at new spaces and I'm trying to send something to somebody that's like, Hey, take a look at the space. And the fact that I can open up Polycam and just wander around and wave my camera around and get out a 3D model and then, you know, with, uh, you know, 10 minutes after I got there, I can send a 3D model that someone can hit on the, on the, uh, you can, you can tap it on your messages and it will pop up at full res. Like, like if you walk outside into a parking lot, you're walking through the space, you know, in your phone. I find that to be amazing. It's, <laughs> like, it's know. amazing. The USDZ standard, you know, USD and, and, yeah. and the, the zip version that, that they're going to have, I mean, all this stuff, it's going to be a convergence very soon. There's, yeah. there's so much that you can do so quickly. Um, Polycam is a great little app. I mean, I use it all the time. You yeah. know, there's another one called Dot that does, you know, LiDAR. It, there's so many incredible things you can do on a mobile device that you just 
would never have thought that that's where we're at today. It's, it's magic. Yeah. It really is. Next question. Next one coming in from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. I've got some old FLC animation. Any suggestion from converting them to MP4 or movies? Mm. It's pretty basic, pretty pretty straightforward question. Yeah, I think you could start with the media. And- Adobe, uh, you know, media encoder would probably yeah. be able to handle that. Yeah, we'll go to the next next question. Next question from Jack, or excuse me, Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What are some of the most challenging and rewarding projects that you've worked on as a visual effects supervisor and producer? Oh, wow. There's several come to mind. I mean, a lot. Lately, uh, I worked on a show called Echo 3. It was on Apple Plus. Um, Really challenging because the director wasn't a visual effects guy. He was like, I'm going to get a real chopper. I'm going to go to the, you know, out in the middle of the Sahara. I'm going to go out in the middle of the, the, the jungle. He hated visual effects. And that was a challenge. It was a really interesting challenge. Now, sometimes that a challenge and an, and an advantage. I don't know. I mean, like, is it a, that he's... It's a, dis, it's a disadvantage because you're going in with a deck stacked against you, right? right? And so it's a challenge. But at the same time, it makes you sort of rethink the sensibilities about how you're going to approach certain shots. So, like, for muzzle flashes, I went out and and shot some muzzle flashes like like real muzzle flashes against uh against black right. uh, at various angles for the guns that he wanted these to be associated with and he he was very meticulous about you know he had done the hurt locker and zero dark 30 very very into reality and and making sure that the story is very authentic because he was a journalist right so that was a good challenge and it, it made me sort of rethink the approach to visual effects, it was really, it was really a tough time because there was a lot of, of visual effects happening. And so there wasn't right. a lot of uh, capacity, which was refreshing, right? Cause I, it went from, it was like almost like a boom time for, for visual effects. And, and it, it was great because you, you know, a shot that would normally, you know, run a certain amount of money was like three times the amount to, to go anywhere because it was supply and demand. Um, but we also did some de-aging stuff there. It was very subtle. And I worked with the guys at Lola effects, <clears throat> really spectacular work. I always amazed Lola like was hidden for like a decade. Like oh, it was yeah. just like no one, there was no, I, I we drove, I, I can't where it is in LA, but I saw like, a Lola sign on the side yeah. of the building in Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, because I remember, I remember when that building, the, the building was there, and you'd go in, and it was like you thought you were working at like Kerner Optical, like you know, like there's no, there's no, like there was no nothing. No one wanted to talk about the fact that all these people were getting DH for the movies, um, yeah. and and then it became a thing. You know, it's 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 it's, it's interesting. Yeah, the the. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was talking to someone about the fact that doing some, um, you know, we've gotten into this thing of doing, we're like a spaceship, we're going to do a spaceship, you know, and it's going to be CG and it's going to be whatever. And the fact that doing some of it practically in the shots that you would do, not, not all the shots, but if you did some of them practically, what it did is it showed up where we weren't lifting as hard as we could you know, on the CG ship. And that's what people complain about. They feel like it's not real. It doesn't really feel real. But it having to intercut with a physical version of the same thing forced all the CG to be better. 
you know, oh, like it, you know, oh, it, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's, that was the tough part. I mean, we had to do one of the problems that we ran into in this, the, the whole opening, the whole opening scene, uh, into the first, into the first act of the first episode, you, there's like this fight that happens in a snowstorm and they had to shoot it when it wasn't a snowstorm. So there's snow on the ground somewhat, but we had to put in all this blowing snow and, and, and it was really tough because as you know, like atmospheric effects and stuff are, are, can be incredibly difficult. And I remember just going outside, (laughs) throwing up some, you know, some, some, uh, you know, I think it was laundry detergent or something and, and getting some slow-mo stuff of that and blowing some stuff in the air and using those elements to put on top of the CG elements just to give it a sense of reality. And it really helped us a lot, just those practical things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we used to do for Camera Shake is we would take a camera and zoom in on a on a sheet of paper with some with some tracking markers and we'd just hold it on that you know, on that, um, on that tracking marker. And, you know, one of the things we learned was your heartbeat, your breath, your, the mechanics of your arms. And if you did it long enough, how tired your arms got, um, the, that you would, it, it created something that you couldn't, you couldn't, it was very hard to animate. And I, even today I can tell you, I can look at most camera shake and go, oh, they made that up. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like they did, you know, like, like they didn't, they didn't, that's not, you know, they, they added that because it just has this little CG 2D kind of thing. It's hard to bring that organic, the, I guess the, the organicness of the world is hard to, is still hard to simulate, whether oh, it's good. geometry there, or movement. Yeah. And I always go like, like everybody that, that says, Hey, I want to learn CG. What, what should, what, what's the one piece of advice you can give me? I'm like, learn what this thing is. Yeah. Pick, pick one up. They're cheap these days. Learn what an f-stop is, aperture. Learn learn about lensing and lighting. The more you do of this, the better you will be at that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's it. It's it's like reality is reality. References go back to your references. No, absolutely. Next question. Respect to Wiggler. Uh, next question coming in from Douglas Carmichael. Have you ever worked with Blender or other open source tools? How would you compare them with commercial tools you grew up with? Blender is a, a sleeping giant. This thing is an incredible piece of software. I mean, I I am not an expert in it, but I dabble. And I can say that it is, it is definitely coming of age. Um, it's taken a long time and it's not... The menu still is a little hard to sort of, you know, there's some things that are counterintuitive. I like software to be really intuitive. I like to not to have to open a manual. I like to be able to like just know where it's going to be, you know. Um, and and I come from the day where we had weird software, like, you know, this program called Bryce, which just had this very strange <laughs> interface, right? Exactly, yeah. And it was, but it was cool. You could figure yeah. and you could do, it was almost like playing an instrument, Bryce. It was like, no, oh, we're going to try, you know, some of this stuff. Um, but, but if you're going to build a menu system, you, you should make it as intuitive as possible. And, and there's still some counterintuitive things inside of Blender that, that still need to get rooted out. But the tool as a whole, open source, tool it's it's incredible it, it does so many fantastic things next question 
from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. How do you feel about the emerging gestural interface with our computers brought forward by ARVRXR as it might affect your art focus, sculpting in VR? Yeah, I think gestures are are going to be different. And I would say this, everybody's going to have to wait until they see the Vision Pro and how interesting it is to, to just do this and and not have to go crazy. Cause you know, we all thought we wanted the power glove, you know, for, for Nintendo. And then it came out and we're like, wow, this is not really cool at all. <laughs> that don't work. Going back to this. Right. I mean, you know, and, and we've been playing with those gloves. I mean, I was at SGI and we were visiting SGI like 25 years ago and they had the gloves and they had the room and they had this huge umbilical cord that came down from the ceiling and would hook into your head this helmet and and you could you could build things and you know move things around and model it and you thought that it was going to be out next year and it's still taken us a long time to figure this out you know to get it you know down below 10 million dollars a copy but also i think at a certain point you know you just don't like it you know it's like if i'm it, it depends on how you're going to be engaged like i feel like when you're playing a video game, it's a type of engagement. When you're watching mm-hmm. YouTube, it's a different type of engagement. When you're, it depends, you know, if we want, I would rather just be out there somewhere doing something with, if I'm going to be active, I want to be active out in the world. But so yeah. I think finding the ways, because there's some th- certain things like if, um, have you done any of those like exercise games uh, on the MetaQuest? Any yeah, it's those? called Robo Recall. Just do, do, do every level without a gun. Unbelievably <laughs> cool. It's really, really good. That exercise. is really cool. You <laughs> look down and you see your arms and you're like. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, exactly. That is the coolest thing in the world. That's cool. Yeah. But like, I don't know, some, like like the connect, uh, it wasn't so cool, you know, like right. trying to like, dr- like jump around to like move something a couple pixels to the right. It uh, wasn't so cool. I needed to be contextual. So like Robo Recall was great for me. And I would like, I, I think that it got to a point where I didn't really share my, my Oculus that much because it was kind of gross because I was sweating a lot because I, oh, yeah. I do it like every day. Uh, I'd play like a half an hour of Robo Recall and get, that was, was like my little exercise for the afternoon, get my brain going again. Um, uh, next question. I'm going to show my age with this question for me. I go back to COSA and the render then sleep process. How does today's rendering speed affect your workflow, Eric? Wow, Cosa, <clears throat> taking me back too. Um, I don't know if you know this, Alex, but I wrote the original Lightning plugin with a friend of mine that was it that shipped in the original version of After Effects. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, I used it. It was one of the original, and I did it. So there was a there was a guy named Chris Cassidy. He was a rotoscope artist, right. and he worked on the original Star Wars. Um, right. And Chris helped us developed that that tool set that that got us that original and we showed we showed it to dave h and dave t and the first thing they were like how did you get the sdk you know i'm like oh (laughs) yeah exactly friend of a friend on a cd you know they're like you know this is really cool we want to ship it with the product we're like this is awesome yeah, we, uh, I worked really closely with Blair um, to do the, the the lightning that happened in Electric Image, you know, oh, yeah. and it was built so that you could, we had him do it for the pod racers, you know, for the engines. 
but I couldn't tell him what they were pod racers, you know, so I was always like, you got two ships and they're held together with lightning and, and you know, these two sailboats and then the sailboats have ropes. He had to do a rope one as well. And um, anyway, so, uh, and as soon as he saw the, the trailer for Star Wars, he, I got these, these this big this big email going, sailboats, I understand now. Oh, I know. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, what was the subtlest visual effect you've added to a project that had the most impact? Probably, you know, we go back to this, <clears throat> excuse me, we go back to this Lola age stuff. We did some other subtle things that made incredible differences. I, I learned a lot from those guys. You know, Edson and, and the guys over at Lola are, are very brilliant. And they, they taught me some things that I didn't really know. It's like, as you age, two things grow, which is your ears and your nose. And a lot of the work they do is, is in putting the ears and the nose back together to roof. And they have, they know this is, this is like, you want to go 10 years back, you want to go 15 years back, you want to go, you know, and they've got all these different tool sets. So it's all, it's, it's, it's really about subtlety. Yeah. Um, and what they do is a lot of subtlety. And, and I've noticed that the subtler approach, the softer, the approach can make some incredible differences. Um, but that's the one that comes to mind. If I, if I have to think about it. Next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA. How do you balance your creative vision with the expectations and requirements of the directors, producers, and clients that you work with? It's a juggling act for sure. <clears throat> um, so, so to, to, to figure it out, you, you kind of, you've got time, you've got money, right? And those are kind of connected and you've got your goals, you know, as, as an artist that you're trying to help them achieve their vision. If they're very collaborative, it can be very rewarding and cool. And you figure out, you know, you'll sacrifice your own time to, to just to make it cooler if they're not very collaborative, it, it can be really difficult. If they don't know what they want, it can be difficult. So I kind of find really, I, I try to, to, if I haven't worked with somebody before, I try to figure out where are they on that spectrum? Or do they know what they want? Do they want you to show them something new? Do they, are they, you know, and you try to guide them early on with look dev and, 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 and do as much prep as you can. And then, and then based on that, you know, you know, sort of how, what approaches you're going to take. Um, sometimes you can be a little bit more experimental and, and a little bit more creative. And sometimes you have to rein that in and you have to be more pragmatic and, and really do things a little bit differently. So it really depends on the client and, and it depends on the project, how you're going to approach it. Next question. Brody Hefner from New York City. When museums present detailed digital 3D models of collection objects, they hit constraints based on the number of polygons composing the object. What new software tools are able to efficiently display objects with many millions of polygons? Well, I mean, there's always the tools like, you know, ZBrush that, that are really good at polygons. Um, I remember Alex back in the day showed us this, this, uh, what was that sculpt that sculpt program? Oh, it was um electric image had it. It was um yeah. it was uh sculpty or sculpts I, I don't remember. It wasn't it was Yeah, I can't it was, remember. It was, it was like their ZBrushy kind yeah, of cuz cuz it was it was beyond ZBrush because ZBrush was like this 2.5D and, and we were like 
what if we just rotate something around and model it? And I actually modeled all of the, in the 90s, I modeled, I can't think of the name of it right now, but I, I modeled um, Titan AE, all of the crystals. Oh. So all of those crystals that are in Titan AE, I modeled in that amorphium. Morphium. Morphium. That's right. When you and first I modeled showed me that, all... it was like, whoa, that's magic. And ZBrush was kind of the same way. It was like, oh, this is magical. It's got this. But there, there are, I think the thing the thing is, is compute power keeps, you know, keeps going. AI is is interesting because the the machine learning algorithms inside of the chips today are getting really smart at 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 display, right? So they're they're working really hard to like optimize display and 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 allow us to throw more and more and more at it. But I can still I can still break a computer with polygons, believe me. Oh yeah. <laughs> to this day, I absolutely can bring a computer to its knees with some yeah. of the data sets. Although you know, I think that the the phones are becoming amazing. I remember I had a budget of about this is going to get old. I had a budget for an entire game level of about. Um, uh, 3,000 polygons. I could put 3,000 polygons in, and this is in the mid-90s. Um, and now I have, uh, and that was, a, that was a lot at the time um, to, to do that, and I and all the textures were 128 by 128, or it wouldn't play back right. I had a couple that were 256, like sneak in. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and now I'm, you know, we're talking about 50 meg files with 2 million polygons, and that's the limit right now on the, on the phone. And it's, and there's no, it's, it's, it's a theoretical, I mean, it, it could go higher. Apple just somehow is putting a limit on that right now. But it just opens up and seamlessly plays. Like, it's it's an amazing, amazing thing. A lot of it has to do with uh, decimation. You know, good decimation and normal mapping is really the, the key to the operation. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, the Autodesk software suites, uh, among other big-name software suites, are now running on Apple Silicon Macs. Do you think that changes the game for lower-level artists to have such performance easily accessible? Our, I don't think 3ds Max is still running. We'll never run no. on the Mac no, it's ever. It's too, too much DirectX. It's too much DirectX. Yeah, I mean that's the that was the you know that was the the tool that I used for many years. Still use it to this day, um, and not because of any other reason that that other than as a DCC, it fits really well with Unreal Engine. Can you define what DCC? Oh yeah, so it's like a, a dynamic content creation tool. So. Like when you're using uh, Maya, 3 Studio Max, Blender, Cinema 4D, these are all like, like the the DCCs. You're, you're dynamically creating content with them. And then you're publishing them off to different places. And the places may be Unreal Engine. They may be a web browser. It depends on where you're going. It may be a, a video or a movie. So your 3D daily driver, the thing that you use mostly is is that, that tool set, if it's Blender or if it's Cinema or if it's... In my case, it's 3D Studio Max because I've used it for so long, and and I went from electric image to I mean I, I've used it all. I've used you know Alias, Wavefront, turned into Maya, and all this other stuff. But I ended up in, in 3D Studio Max because I was primarily doing a lot of um, architectural things that would then go into video games, um, and the and that worked really well because Unreal Engine and 3D Studio Max share the same. Um, world space so they share the same the same units and the same world space and things go back and forth very very easily so that's how I sort of got got set in my ways on 3D Studio Max last question for the hour last one from Douglas Carmichael define look dev oh so look dev is when you're 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 developing how something is going to to appear so you are 
you're you're doing a test to see how shiny do I want this helmet to be? How gold do I want it to be? And you do, you explore. And this is a, this is when you're sort of exploring the creative process of exploring. And normally you're doing it for um, like a, a director or or somebody who is who is commissioning you to come up with uh, you know w- what is this going to be? And you try different things. You're like, okay, well let's throw a gold cape on, or let's do let's put them in uh, an iron suit or let's, so you you try a bunch of different things and then you, it's a series of refinement where the look dev then gets tighter and tighter and you get closer and closer to what the final product is going to look like. But it's an exploratory phase where you're as an artist, you're going through and trying different things and seeing what works. Eric, thank you so much for coming and joining us for the hour. You bet. Thanks, Alex. It's good to have you. Um, and uh, thank you to the p- panelists for all the great uh, conversation here. We can't do this without you. We also can't do it without all the producers that are out there asking all these questions. Uh, it's a really short show without, uh, or a fairly short show without the, the producers asking questions. And we really appreciate all of your input. Thanks to the incredible team that develops the software that actually makes this show actually happen. As you may guess, it's not just a Zoom call. Um, and so the folks that make all of this happen, thank you for developing uh, the, the, the hardware, the software development tools that required. Um, there's people here cutting the show seven days a week um, uh, around year round um, that make this actually happen. And there's an incredible team managing it, making sure everybody's ready and making sure that we know what we're going to do for the second hour. We appreciate all of your contribution. We traveled in the Tlaloc Traversal answering all these questions. We uh, traveled 67,000 miles. That's 107,000 kilometers. And that's 530 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. <laughs> 